Well, the Israelites are at it again. We want a king, they say. We want to be like other nations. We want to be governed not by a religious elite, but by a king who can protect us and fight for us. And to be fair, the Israelites have a case. Things are not looking so good, continuing to be ruled by the prophet God calls. It worked well in the past, being led by a prophet, when Moses was the prophet. And his successor, Joshua, was a godly and courageous leader. But the strength of the nation of Israel has been on the wane. We heard last week in the story about the prophet Samuel's call, the visions of the Lord were rare during Eli's tenure. The nation of Israel was spiritually dry. And a spiritual dryness translated also to a civic dryness, a communal dryness, a generalized failure to thrive. Eli's sons were unfit for the role, and as we read last week, they met an untimely death, and young Samuel was called to govern the nation in their place. And now today we fast forwarded to the end of Samuel's life, again, facing the issue of orderly transition. Samuel's sons, like Eli's sons before him, were unfit to lead the nation. They did not walk in the Lord's ways, but they turned away after personal gain. We are told they took bribes. They perverted justice. They were corrupt. So it is at this moment that we come into the story The nation of Israel demanding not to be led by these sons of Samuel, spiritually and morally corrupt religious leaders, but like the nations, to be granted a king. Samuel can't help but feel rejected by the rejection of his sons, but God reminds him the rejection is not against Samuel, but against God himself. The people are asking to be led No longer by the Lord God, but by a king, another Lord who will exert his power over the nation, another Lord who will at his best protect and fight for the nation, but who at his worst will enslave the nation. In this case, God is willing to let the people learn by experience. Let them have a king, God tells Samuel. But before you anoint the king, warn the people. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and conscript them into the army. He will take your slaves and the best of your livestock as his own, and you will become his slaves. You will cry out because the Lord you have chosen for yourself has proven not to be for you, but has come against you. And has enslaved you. And yet the people wanted a king. The people wanted a Lord whose promise was protection, prosperity, security. Saul was anointed the first king of Israel, and the people rejoiced. 
And truth be told, the rejoicing continued and things went well for the Israelites for a time with Saul. Until they didn't. Things went well for the Israelites with Saul as long as he followed the Lord. But then he didn't. And as the Lord had predicted, the sons of Israel were conscripted into the army, the slaves and the livestock were requisitioned, and the Israelites themselves became enslaved to the very Lord they had looked to for freedom. Well, the problem was not that the people got a king. The problem was when the king became a god to himself, And when he became a god to the people, a counterfeit god. And that is when freedom became slavery, when rejoicing became regret. This is a good story. It's a good story because it is the story of God's people throughout history. It's a good story because it is in some ways our story too. As long as God's people have been in relationship with God, God's people have also looked to small g gods, counterfeit gods, whose promises of protection and prosperity and security. In the old days, it was Baal, it was Molech, it was Astartes. These days, we look to things that we might not immediately recognize as gods, but whose promise is nonetheless protection, prosperity, security. We look to things that, like Israel receiving a king like the other nations, as far as they go, are good things. We look to things that do give us the good life we're looking for. We rejoice in our new jobs, the exciting new responsibilities, the greater financial rewards. We rejoice in our social networks that support us mightily through tough times, that celebrate with us in our joys and grieve with us in our sorrows. We rejoice in the educations, the experiences that we're able to give our children. These are all good gifts from God. They give us the life that we are looking for, the good life that we are looking for. They give us the protection, the prosperity, the security that we are looking for. They're good things in our lives, good gifts from God, until they become small g gods to us, and they begin controlling our decisions and demanding our ultimate loyalties. We've all experienced the job that we have loved that has begun to demand so much that our health and our relationships suffer. We've experienced conflicts in our friendship networks when priorities and values get turned sideways. We've experienced our own volunteer commitments and our children's activities getting out of balance. Rather than them giving us life, they bring us stress and strife and resentment instead. We've all experienced in small ways and large when the good gifts God has given us begin to enslave us. And it is subtle at first, but it builds until our lives really are no longer our own 
And we, like the Israelites, begin to cry out for freedom. And it all begins to cut even deeper than just the discomfort of our schedules, our over-busyness, our over-committedness. As our bondage to counterfeit gods, not our Lord God, the toll begins to show in our families, in our community, exhaustion and fear morph into anger and contempt. As Wendell Berry says it in his sterling novel, Jaber Crow, anger and contempt and hatred leap from one heart to another like fire and dry grass. The revelations of love are never complete or clear, not in this world, but hate comes off in slices, clear and whole. You can hate people completely and kill them in an instant. And we see this destruction as the logical and the reasonable outcome of lives that slip into bondage. Into bondage to good things to start with, but then into bondage to things that will destroy. Alcohol, pornography, food. And we grieve together as the power of counterfeit gods to enslave and then destroy has been made visible this week. As violence has broken out again in our community, in our broader networks, Violence against others, violence against ourselves, and our hearts have broken yet again. The enemy draws us in with promises of protection, prosperity, security, and those promises are true and life is good until it isn't. When the enemy strikes, he strikes hard. Death around us horrifies us, it devastates us. And even more so when it is so puzzling. Where were the signs? How could we have known? We are tested. We are pressed. As St. Paul says it in the readings from 2 Corinthians that we've been reading these past few weeks, we have this treasure in clay jars to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. St. Paul probably wrote these famously comforting and encouraging words from his own imprisonment while he was in prison in Ephesus. And all of his ministry in Corinth and in Ephesus was falling down around him. He was literally imprisoned, suffering, hungry, probably injured from the beatings he was receiving, perhaps ill, And the truth that Paul returned to in his bondage, in his suffering, is the truth that he invites us to return to when we discover 
that the good things in life have enslaved us. And we are in bondage to far darker powers than we realized. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. The lordship of Jesus is at the center of everything. And this is how we are returned to life. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, is the one who has won victory over death. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, is sovereign over all the powers of this world. He is the one who has set aside the powers and the principalities that would claim our loyalties. He is the one who frees us from the powers and principalities that would enslave us. Jesus the Christ is the one who can draw us out of despair, who can draw us back into hope. He is the one who, even when we are held within the body of death, is bringing new life to bear in us today. And so we have this treasure in clay jars. We have the glory of Christ, the life of Jesus, manifested in our own lives, in our own bodies. You've perhaps seen the beautiful Japanese earthenware vessels, kintsuki vessels. Kintsuki is the name for the vessels that have been broken and have been repaired with gold. They're beautiful. And they're all the more beautiful because their repair is the most precious part of them. The breakage and the repair in this tradition are treasured as part of their history, not to be hidden, but as a witness to how even broken things are redeemed and are made more beautiful by their repair. We have this treasure in clay jars. We ourselves, our community, we are like kintsuki vessels. We are made beautiful by the life of Christ, which is like gold, joining us together where we have broken, redeeming us where we have shattered, making us whole when it has seemed hopeless. And so you and I, we are invited today to live together as a new kind of community. We are invited to come to this altar rail today as a community that has surely enough troubles of our own with the counterfeit gods that we have invited into our lives and given our loyalties to. But we live together as a community that nonetheless has been claimed without exception as God's own beloved and redeemed and in the process of being restored community. You and I, we're invited to live together as a new kind of community. We're invited to return again today to Jesus. Jesus, our King. We're invited as this new kind of community to give a fresh witness into Nashville. We're invited to say, here's what it looks like to be a community. Imperfect, irresolute, but held together and forged by Christ's love. Here's what it looks like to be a community that even in our brokenness is showing forth through our cracks the life of Christ within us. 
Here's what it looks like to be a community who's, in whatever halting ways, loyalty is to King Jesus. This is a community where you are welcomed and treasured. This is a community where we are all being made new.